This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Welcome to This Week. The FBI has just arrested the suspect accused of leaking a trove of highly secret US government intelligence. It was a dramatic arrest with heavily armed FBI agents swarming on a home in Massachusetts. Their suspect, a fresh-faced 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, wearing red shorts and an old T-shirt, hardly looking like a threat to national security as he was taken into custody. He was a, he was a young, charismatic man who loved nature, God, who loved shooting guns and, and racing cars. But officials say the US Air Force National Guardsman is involved in the biggest leak of classified US intelligence documents in years, claiming he led an online gaming chat group where dozens of secret files first appeared. One purported member of the group told the Washington Post at first it was just transcripts, then photos of the documents themselves. It would appear as if he sort of grew angry with the fact that only one or two people were paying attention to these documents that he was pouring his heart out into. And as a sign of just anger, he just decided to post the full documents. The leak has caused havoc for the US and its allies, with potentially serious ramifications for Ukraine's upcoming spring offensive. We don't know the precise scale of this leak. I have personally reviewed a little over 50 leaked documents, which include slides about military intelligence of Ukraine, but also CIA reports. Shashank Joshi is defence editor for The Economist. But this seems to be the tip of the iceberg. The Washington Post in the last day or so has reported around 300 different documents, leaked documents that were shared on the uh, Discord messaging platform, some of them going back many, many months. And it's very clear that these cover the whole gamut from secret uh, to top secret, which is the highest level of classification. And not only that, but also documents that describe intelligence that was gathered in very specific and sensitive ways, for example, by what we would call signals intelligence or the interception of communications. So this has all sorts of serious consequences, not just on Ukraine's military preparations because of the exposure of a number of their military details and secrets, but also, I think, on America's relationship with its allies, including countries like Israel, Hungary, South Korea, the UAE, who are described in the leaks, who, on whom it's clear the US has been spying in quite a lot of detail. But perhaps most seriously, the worry is that if these disclosures allow adversaries to work out precisely how they were being eavesdropped on or collected on, as we say, then it would help them plug the gap. So I think there will be some consequences for US intelligence collection. Let's dig into the content of these files. A lot of them relate to the war in Ukraine and give a very detailed account of the state of Ukraine's military and defences. What kind of picture do they paint? They paint a picture of a force that, as of the end of February, was uh, very much a force in progress. It was being uh, built up to about nine brigades uh, for the offensive that's coming up, six of which were being supplied and trained by the West. And we had details of the precise number of tanks and artillery that are due to be in each of those brigades. I think the most alarming aspect of this was the revelations and disclosures around 
the very limited amount of air defense ammunition that Ukraine has. We have details, for example, that the SA-10 and SA-11 air defense systems, which make up around 90% of its medium-range air defense setup, are going to run out of ammunition either by the end of March, which, which may or may not have happened, or by the end of next month. And I think that's absolutely alarming when you realize that the Russians are still regularly firing uh, missile and drone barrages at Ukraine, and that this is a real glaring weakness in Ukraine's arsenal. And just to spell it out, what would such a deficiency mean for the course of this war? It would mean two things. One of them really is that uh, it could potentially allow Russia's air force to return over Ukraine's skies. It has hitherto been keeping a distance because of the threat from Ukraine's ground-based air defense systems. And that has been enormously useful to have muted that aerial threat. So if the Russian bombers and jets could get back over Ukrainian airspace and have free run, that would be a huge problem. And the second aspect is that, uh, of course, if more of these drones and missile strikes were to get through, it could do much more severe damage to Ukraine's power grid. The Russian strike campaign that began in earnest in October has basically failed because Russia has not been able to produce enough missiles and fire them in sufficient quantities to overwhelm and saturate Ukrainian defenses. But if it were to do that, I think you'd see huge effects on civilian power generation, knock-on effects across the economy. And Ukraine might have to decide between allocating air defense either for frontline troops or for critical infrastructure around cities. And that's a choice that no government should have to make. Yeah, absolutely. So what do these documents tell us about Russia's forces? I think they paint a pretty sorry picture of Russia's forces. A lot of that we knew. We knew, I think, that uh, Russia's forces were in poor shape. They had exhausted their offensive potential. They were probably not going to be able to make further substantial gains in, in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass region. But we had some additional details. We have, for example, the casualty figures from the Defense Intelligence Agency suggesting somewhere between 35,500 to 43,000 Russian troops have died, which is far, far higher than the Ukrainian figure, and over 154,000 wounded, which is about 40,000 more than the Ukrainian figure. There's also just an extraordinary number of losses. You know, They've lost more than 2,000 tanks according to these numbers, and they only have 419 in the Ukrainian theater. And of course, in recent days, we've seen some other news outlets also report on additional documents, ones that I haven't seen and can't corroborate. But uh, for instance, the New York Times is reporting that there has been infighting between the FSB, Russia's domestic intelligence service, and the defense ministry, with the FSB accusing the ministry of obscuring and understating casualty figures. So I think they also paint a picture of a force that is riven with infighting, mistrust, and, and this kind of a, a, a constant internecine warfare internally. And so what are the possible consequences of this leak for Ukraine's war effort, and how could this intelligence be used by Russia? Well, in many ways, it gives them a more granular picture of these Ukrainian brigades. It could help them identify the specific brigades that are would be likely to be used in the first phase of an offensive, those, for example, with the most uh, offensive firepower in terms of artillery and tanks, perhaps those with the right number of uh, breaching equipment for mine clearing or crossing rivers. And I think that could give the Russians an indication of, by watching those brigades, about the timing and location of an offensive. Uh, although we shouldn't overstate that, you know, this is still there's an element of uncertainty in this. I think the other problem is it tells them which Ukrainian core, which is roughly equivalent to what we would, you and I, would, in, in our respective military systems would call a division, as responsible for running the offensive. And again, that would mean the Russians know if they take out the headquarters of that particular core, it's going to put the 
Ukrainians in a, in a tricky spot. Now, look, this, these documents are over a month old. Things have changed. The Ukrainians can adapt. And Russian intelligence has not proven extremely good at anticipating Ukrainian moves. So I wouldn't say that this somehow is, is so devastating that it compromises Ukraine's offensive and, and utterly undercuts its plans. But I think it comes at a very bad time. And I think the biggest effect could be not so much Russian insight into Ukraine, but the sort of loss of trust that may result between Ukraine and its U.S. ally. Uh, the Ukrainians were already a little bit wary of sharing information. They already thought the U.S. system was a bit leaky. They didn't trust it entirely. Remember, many of these are Soviet-trained officers who you know, may have cultural differences. A leak like this, I think, is just going to cause a great deal of mistrust between these, these partners just when they need it the most, when you're in the middle of a very sensitive offensive that could have big political consequences if they, for example, get very close to Crimea. The US, of course, loosened up its restrictions on who has access to top secret documents after the September 11 terrorist attacks because the failures there were largely put down to not enough sharing of intelligence between US agencies. So is all of this just an inevitable consequence of that policy that there's just going to be more leaks? Well, it's not just that. It's it's also, I would say, a function of overclassification. Um, you know, things get classified as top secret that probably don't need to be classified as top secret. And the impact is that people may be more lax with this material than they otherwise would be. Um, the other issue, I think, is that you have very, very wide access, as you say. And I think that to a degree, that is going to have to narrow down. The important thing to remember is that the Taliban and al-Qaeda had no counterintelligence capability. They could not really... Um, penetrate U.S. intelligence and penetrate the Pentagon and get these details. So it didn't matter if you shared it widely. The Russians and the Chinese are much more capable, and they can get some of these details. So I think there's going to be a rethinking of counterintelligence in, in this new age um, beyond the war on terror, in an age of great power competition with much more capable intelligence services as your adversaries. And we are probably going to see something of a, a narrowing of the circle in terms of what is shared when and under what conditions. That's Shashank Joshi, defence editor for The Economist. Well, with all the soul-searching after the Royal Commission into aged care and the reforms that followed, you'd be forgiven for thinking the worst of the aged care crisis might be behind us. But this week, things appeared to get markedly worse. In a shock announcement, Wesley Mission is closing all of its three Sydney facilities. Almost 200 residents and 250 staff were told they had until the end of May to find new places to live and work. My mum's 93, he has um, early set dementia, so the whole thing is just a complete nightmare. It's just a sh- terrible, terrible, it's disgraceful. Wesley Mission blamed the closures in large part on the very reforms stemming from the Royal Commission into Aged Care that were meant to improve the ailing system, like, for example, the requirement for a registered nurse to be on hand 24-7. Wesley's CEO, Stu Cameron, said though necessary, the reforms have heaped even more pressure on providers, many of which are already running at a loss. The cost burdens around clinical governance are providing adequate support and care, uh, particularly with the understandable increase in expectations arising from the Royal Commission is placing additional burden on providers like us, and particular smaller providers. Uh, there's no question that, that there's going to be ongoing disruption within the sector. So are these closures just the tip of the iceberg? 
The short answer is yes. I think that what we're going to see in the coming months and years is the rationalisation of the aged care sector. The bigger places will get bigger. The smaller providers are less likely to be able to sustain both the workforce and economic pressures required. Professor Joseph Ibrahim is the head of the Health Law and Ageing Research Unit at Monash University. Wesley has said they're not able to find a sufficient workforce to meet the new standards. There have been pre-existing workforce shortages that have been highlighted by the Royal Commission and well known prior to that. The Royal Commission asked for more, I guess, direct contact time with residents and the Labor government have pushed forward the uh, the need to have a registered nurse essentially 24 hours a day. Now, those initiatives are ones that we would support as a community and would want to happen. What Wesley appears to have struggled with is to be able to fill those shifts and if they don't fill those shifts and they potentially end up with a non-compliance from the regulator, they will get penalised by the, by the regulator for not adhering to the new standards. The Aged Care Minister, Annika Wells, suggested this week that aged care providers wouldn't get in trouble if they couldn't comply with the government's reforms by the July 1 deadline. I'm not strapping on my GoPro and my Blundstones and kicking down the doors of facilities on 1 July that have failed to meet 24-7 nursing requirements. So why is it so hard for these providers to meet these requirements for round-the-clock care, for example? Well, the, the, the long explanation, and, and we really need to look at this far more deeply, is we go back to 1997, so over 25 years ago. John Howard and the Liberal government changed the Aged Care Act so that aged care became far more market-driven. They removed the obligation to spend the funds that the government provided on staff and they also changed the requirement about the type of staff so that the emphasis on registered nurses was essentially removed. Now that we have a market-driven sector, the providers essentially reduced the total number of nurses working in the sector, increased the number of personal care workers there are far less nurses in aged care than there ever was before, a far more casualised workforce and people with minimal qualifications. The pay rates for the people working in aged care are not on the same level as staff working in similar uh, human service industries. You know, people just aren't there to work. You have this, in a sense, this perfect storm. And so there's going to be pain So obviously the government can't turn back the clock to the late 90s. What should it do? I get very frustrated when people do not learn the lessons from the past. And sure, they can't turn the clock back, but the question is how did we get to this point helps us to understand how we get past it. So 
we have a market-driven economy um, in in the in aged care. So that means that the providers can enter or exit the field based on um, pure economics, without necessarily consideration of the psychological, emotional impact on residents and their families when they close. What the government needs to do is to provide incentives and, uh, I guess, motivating programs to improve the total healthcare workforce, to have aged care on a parity with the hospital workforce and the NDIS workforce who are both better paid and generally have better conditions than you'd see in aged care and to remove this notion that the market will solve our problems because the market hasn't done that and especially being mindful that we've had the Royal Commission but the Liberal government did not accept some of the key recommendations and it doesn't appear that the Labor government that's currently in power is going to revisit some of those recommendations about restructuring aged care completely. So it seems the aged care sector was failing our loved ones, so we put in place a Royal Commission which released recommendations for reforms. The government has put in place, as you say, some of those reforms, but they are causing additional problems for the sector. This is just going round and round, this problem, isn't it? Well, in some ways it is, but the the key thing here is that what we want to do is to drive up the standards from where they were to where they should be now. And so that means there are going to be gaps. What we don't want to be doing is compromising on the care and this notion that the government would give exceptions or make allowances for homes to be operating at a standard below what is reasonable, I I, I don't think is sensible nor what we would want to do. And and there's certainly no one talks about running a hospital without it being appropriately staffed. And yet we're willing to enter a conversation that says we should be running aged care homes below the minimum standard that the Royal Commission and the community has said is needed, which we know even now is still not sufficient to meet the needs of older people. That's Professor Joseph Ibrahim from Monash University. Our politicians have a reputation, fairly well-deserved, mind you, for placing personal ambition above their principles. But this week, a Liberal Party frontbencher handed back his place on the front bench and all the trappings that come with it, more staff, higher salary and the like, because he fundamentally disagrees with his party's position on the voice to Parliament. And so I think I'm in a unique situation. Today I'm resigning uh, without rancour, but on a point of principle. Um, And I think uh, uh, what I want to be able to say to to my children in the future is that your father stood up for something that he believes in and that that's really important and that's what all of us as parliamentarians should do. That's Julian Lisa. Until this week, he was Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians and Shadow Attorney General. Now he plans to campaign against the formal position of his party in the hope of convincing Australians to vote yes in the upcoming referendum. For him to quit on principle over this issue uh, that's all about Indigenous Australians and the Constitution, well, that is a very big deal indeed. 
Uh, we don't often see, uh, frankly, uh, people leave uh, you know, positions of authority like this uh, on a matter of principle. David Spears is host of the Insiders program on ABC TV. I think given his background, his well-known position on The Voice over many years, it would have been impossible for him to stay uh, given the, uh, the Liberal position to um, support the no case here. He was one of the constitutional conservatives, this is before he entered Parliament, who met with Noel Pearson to try and find uh, a way to move forward on the idea of constitutional recognition for Indigenous Australians in a way that would be meaningful, more than symbolic, uh, and in a way that would be palatable to Conservatives. And what they landed on was this very idea of a voice to Parliament. You know, his involvement in this goes right back. Uh, he's long believed that uh, a voice enshrined in the Constitution will, as he says, help shift the dial. I believe that the voice can help move the dial on Indigenous education, health, housing, safety and economic development. That by devolving power to those who actually are affected uh, by government decisions, you're going to get better results. That's the bottom line for him. Yeah, so because of that long history, it just would have been, you know, really impossible for him to stick with uh, the Liberal line. What exactly is the Liberal line? What's Peter Dutton's position on this now? And, and how does Julian Lisa's move affect the strength of that position? Well, it's a, it's a good question. The Liberal position that was announced when Peter Dutton declared that they would not be supporting the yes case in the referendum the Liberal position is now to support some sort of constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians, but just what sort of recognition and what the process would be for deciding that, we don't know. It's simply some sort of recognition at this stage. Then the Liberal Party also wants local and regional voices legislated, but not in the Constitution and not a national voice. All of that is very ill-defined. And look, we know Peter Dutton has spent six months or more demanding detail from the government, but this position that he's landed on really is lacking a fair bit of detail at the moment. So Julian Lisa, though, he will be out and about campaigning against that position ultimately, won't he? So is that blowing a hole in, in the Liberals' argument, considering that he is the man uh, who, until this week, was turned to for issues on constitution and, and Indigenous Australians in the Liberal Party? Well, Yes, I, I think it does. Um, look, Julian Lisa, his split from the Liberal frontbench and his you know, breakup with Peter Dutton, if you like, on this issue uh, has been as amicable as, as possible. They, they've, they've had nothing but nice and respectful things to say about each other. And it's clear in all the interviews Julian Lisa has done this week that he doesn't want to trash Peter Dutton. He has his eyes on a return to the front bench, presumably after this whole referendum. You know, he, he doesn't want to tear down the leader, as often happens when people quit the front bench. But he, he does have a fundamental, a profound difference uh, in view to, to that of Peter Dutton when it comes to whether we need a voice in the Constitution or not, whether we need a national uh, Indigenous voice or not. I mean, as I say, Julian Lisa's view is this will shift the dial Peter Dutton's view is that it won't make any difference for those in regional and remote communities. So that is a fundamental difference between the two. Um, you know, there are other differences as well, but that really is the core of it, whether this thing is going to help Indigenous Australians or not. So it does feel a little bit messy on both sides in, in some ways, on the yes side and, and the no side. Where do you see all this going, considering that without bipartisan support, historically, referendums haven't had much luck? 
No, they haven't. Uh, referendums have not passed in Australia without bipartisan support. History tells us that, and that is a difficulty for the yes case. And look, some of the opponents, some of those strongest backers of the no case, believe now that with Julian Lisa no longer in that role, there will be a, a cleaner and stronger uh, campaign put by the Liberal Party, along with the National Party and others on the no side uh, here. Uh, I would note there are other moderate Liberals, Simon Birmingham amongst them, who do sound still a little torn on this question. They're supporting the party position, but can't say which way they will personally vote on this uh, at the referendum later this year. So, look, there is still a bit of messiness uh, on, on that side. For the Yes campaign, well, like, you know, clearly Julian Lisa quitting the front bench, saying that, you know, despite concerns over the wording and the legal risk and so on, he will still back the Yes case. Well, that's a, that's a, a boost for the Yes campaign, no doubt about it. If this does give greater cover and courage to not necessarily Liberal MPs, but Liberal voters, Liberal supporters in the community to back the yes case, seeing a Conservative of the likes of Julian Lisa on board, well, that clearly is going to help the yes case. They're by no means um, there yet, though. There's a long way to go in this whole process over the coming months. Obviously, this is all hugely consequential for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, but also now for Peter Dutton and his leadership. How Mm. much does the outcome of this referendum matter for him and the Liberal Party more generally? It matters uh, a lot. Peter Dutton's leadership in many ways is riding on the result here. If the yes case succeeds and Peter Dutton has been so active, as he says he will be, in the no campaign, well, he has then seem to have misjudged the Australian mood uh, on uh, a big, big issue. And I think it's hard to see how he would survive as leader, particularly after, well, the difficulties that he's already confronted this year, losing the Aston by-election and so on. If the no case is successful, the government will attempt to blame Peter Dutton for that. I don't think that would... um, that would cost him his leadership, though. I think uh, you know he'll he'll be strengthened uh, internally if the no case gets up. So there there is a great deal at stake uh, for the opposition leader, um, and a great deal at stake in how he approaches this whole campaign as well. He has not used some of the language of uh, others on the no case, uh, particularly One Nation and the Nationals. He's not been calling this a a race-based body that's going to divide us based on uh, racial lines. His arguments are more about the legal risk. His arguments more are more about this being a bloated bureaucracy that won't make a difference on the ground. Um, but whether he does get dragged into a more robust argument against this proposal will be interesting to see over the coming months. That's David Spears, the host of Insiders on ABC TV. And that's the episode for this week. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. This week is produced by Eleanor Whitehead, Nick Grimm, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. 